All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 this morning, and as you turn there, uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't met Patrick and Amanda, uh, maybe you guys can just stay around a little bit after the service and people can come introduce themselves to you guys. Um, I think Patrick's still getting changed and dried off his hair. I think it's going to take him a while to dry that off, but, uh, uh, but whenever he gets out there, if you haven't met them, I encourage you to uh, meet them. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Matthew records for us that at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law? How on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, And are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. Jesus said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees? went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. There are many things in our world that promise to make our lives easier. I think nothing more so than technology, right? That's the promise. It will make your life easier. There's an app for that. You've ever heard that? Yeah. Hey, you, you know, you could just download an app. That'll take care of it. Uh, we all by now, well, most of us have smartphones, and maybe you have more than a smartphone. You've got a Kindle or you've got an iPad, and, and some of you are all in. You even got the Apple Watch or smartwatch. You're totally wired, connected, and your life is easier than everyone else's, Right? These devices are pretty remarkable, aren't they? They connect us to everyone and everywhere uh, in a way that previous generations never even could dream of. Uh, We now have video conversations. I mean, that was only from like sci-fi movies that you could have video chats with people and you could do so around the world. We've talked about Caitlin or the Kiefer's. We we were able to do those things with them and we could do it in the palm of our hand or you could be like my children and just be in other rooms and you can do it as well. Um, Our devices uh, translate multiple languages on the spot and have gotten rather good at. Whenever I'm on a mission field, uh, I can take Google Translate with me and I can communicate 
with people. You can even set it on audio when they talk and Google Translate translates it and repeats it back to you. And then you can speak English and it goes back to whatever language that you're speaking to uh, other people. Our, our, our devices are, are uh, unbelievable. They, they manage our email, our texts, our calendars, our tasks. They do all sorts of things. In fact, that we can have large libraries uh, with us. I have most of my library right here, 5,000 volumes of books right here. I got them. That's how I come up with stuff as I'm preaching. I just look up the book and I, and I go. <laughs> I can do all those things with an iPad. Yet the promise of ease also comes with new burdens, right? I didn't need glasses till I was reading all those books on this iPad. There was something I learned, and now I, there's no going back. I've got to have glasses. We suffer from information overload. It's just as constantly coming alerts for this and that, uh, and it overwhelms us. At least it overwhelms me. I think we who are addicted to social media, we, we now have this new fear. If I don't constantly scroll, I will miss something. You feel it. I've got to. I feel like I'm out of the loop if I don't know what that person ate today. <laughs> Privacy seems to be more scarce than ever. My, my family can literally track me, and they can see where I am and where I've gone. I'm talking about my mother, who's probably watching right now, and, and they can see where I'm at. There's no privacy. Maybe even your employer or your friends uh, they have access to you 24-7, always able to contact you. And that, on the surface, seems great until it's not great. Those pressures can wear us out. Well, perhaps this is how you feel about following Jesus. Maybe it's overwhelming to you. His promise of rest and ease and at the end of verse 11 or, or chapter 11, maybe it seems actually too good to be true. Seems like a burden to you, overwhelming, that Jesus is unrelenting and that you just can't escape his demands. Maybe reading the scriptures, praying, evangelizing, giving, serving. You just think about all those things. Maybe they feel like they've become drudgeries to you. They've become burdens to you. Even maybe, maybe some of them are condemnations to you. Whenever you hear them, you're just like, I'm not worthy. I must be the worst Christian ever. And, and, and I don't measure up because I can't do or I don't do or I don't have the desire to do. And so these things are burdens and rather than life-giving pursuits for you. Well, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been presenting to us a way of living in the world which focuses on heart transformation rather than outward expressions of righteousness. Now, now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is unconcerned with outward expressions of righteousness, but what it does mean is that the righteousness of the kingdom, the deeds of the kingdom, the living of the kingdom, it derives from a redirection of our loves. And that, that makes all the difference. Right behavior, right action, right service, right expression, actually, Jesus says, results from a redirected heart, a redirected love. 
And here in our passage, this is what Jesus is helping us see. And the, and the situation that's come up is a particular law, a particular expression that was, that was um, demanded of the Jews in that time. And that is the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath was actually one of the main uh, ways or things that separated the Jews from all the nations. Uh, they're... they're, they're Sabbath-keeping kind of made them a weird batch. You, you don't do anything on Saturday. So there was also, along with that, food laws, what they couldn't eat, and then circumcision. Those three things, along with the Sabbath, was kind of identification mark. This is what it means to be a Jew. And so with, with the rest of the law, Jesus is now rightly interpreting the law. He's rightly going to reveal the heart of that command, which, which the Jews had, had, had taken and made it into something that was never meant to be. And this is tr something important for us. Jesus is teaching us the true spirit of the law, the heart matter, if you will. What is the heart directive that the law is actually going after? Because if we miss the heart matter, and this is what we do often with the commands in Scripture. We, we, we make them the heart of the matter rather than the heart. And when we miss them, God's commandments become burdens. And maybe perhaps they, they become swords that are wielded by people to strike you down. Well, that's what's happening as Jesus confronts the Pharisees this morning. And so where I want us to, to come again to is the school of Christ. Remember, Jesus says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me that I'm gentle, I'm lowly of, of heart. We want to enroll in that, that class. We want to enroll in the school of Christ and learn from him. What do you mean? What does that really mean that you are gentle toward us? You're humble toward us. And with that idea, I specifically want us to see that Christ commands are meant for our refreshment. They are meant for our well-being. They are meant for our enjoyment so that we would rightly perceive his merciful character and then reflect that character in the world. That's what I want us to see. I want us to redirect our thoughts maybe as to what God demands of us and calls us to. And if we rightly understand it as Christ is calling us, the prayer is that it would not be burdensome. You would find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so in order for us to rest in Christ, and that's really what we're getting at too, he ends the, in chapter 11, uh, come to me, all who are heavy and laden, and I will give you rest. Well, he's now showing us what this looks like. And in the first case of burden that he's wanting to lift off of the people of God is this false understanding of the Sabbath. And so for us to find our rest in Christ, we must, number one, rightly understand Christ's commands. I think often the times when we find the commands burdensome, it's because maybe we don't understand what he's really asking. Or we've missed, or we've misplaced it. We've got it clicked in the wrong slot. We've got the cart before the horse, if you will. Well, here's the scenario Jesus is confronted with in our passage. He and his disciples are, are passing through a grain field. 
They don't have cars. They don't have hoverboards at this time. You know, they're, they're walking. They're walking places. And, and they go through some grain fields, and it, and it happens to be the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, a day in which uh, no work is to be done. And, and on that day, the Jews were to remember particularly God's grace toward them in delivering them out of Egypt. That's what they're to do. Yet this Sabbath commandment is actually kind of vague. If you look at it in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 and Leviticus 23, you'll find that it just says, and do not work and keep the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work was always an issue. Well, am I working uh, if I walk too far? Am I working if I, if I read too much? What constitutes work? And so um, that was always a question that people had. When I was a little boy, I remember I wielded this commandment back at my parents who wanted me to do stuff on Sunday. Uh, I said, well, it's the Sabbath day, isn't it? And, and, and I, anyway, and, uh, and, and, and so that was usually get myself out of homework. We're, we're to, and of course, they would throw that back at me. Well, are you going to be remembering the Lord and worshiping him? And, and you know what, you, you can't go out and play, and, and it, it really didn't work anywhere. Well, the Jews were trying to figure this out, and, and actually over time they developed guidelines. In fact, they put, developed 39 categories of what constitutes work. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just give you some examples. Well, one of these was you could write one letter, but you can't write two. So even if you wrote one, you had to erase and write again? Nope, that doesn't count. You need to wait till Sunday. Uh, so that was, that was considered work. Uh, building or tearing down a building or anything in your, in your property. Moving something from one room to the other. You could move things within their domain, but you can't move them out of their domain. That, that's considered work. So rearranging your furniture, it depends on how much you're rearranging and where you're going to put them. Uh, you could uh, travel uh, what they call a Sabbath walk or a Sabbath journey. You sometimes see that in the Scripture. That was just a little uh, over a half a mile. If you go over 0.5, you violated it. I don't know if they had smart watches that let them know how far they have walked, but they did. These rules even have been adapted a little bit even today in modern-day Judaism. So there's new conveniences, technology. Particularly, you think about electricity. Turning on and off electricity is considered work. So basic things that, like turning on the light, you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So you know how they get around it? Well, you do it the day before. You, you plan. And that's actually what God says. Gather what you need, and then you will rest on the Sabbath. Well, they do that with their light switches. Now think about the fridge. What happens when you open up the fridge door? If your light's working, it, it light comes on, right? Well, you know what they do? Well, the day before, they unscrewed the light bulb. And you, yeah, this seems silly, but this is, this is true. And they're doing it because they're trying to honor what the Bible says. They're trying. What does this mean? Well, this is work, and, and we've agreed that. Same thing with all food. It must be cooked the day before, and, and they have means to, to warm it. Keep your oven on the day before. It's on all day because you can't turn it off either until sundown. And they do all this in an effort to be biblical, to obey God's commands, to keep the Sabbath. So now you can kind of get a sense of which, oh, Jesus and his disciples are doing something big no-no. 
his disciples, no matter how small this is, are harvesting wheat. They are harvesting wheat. It doesn't matter if you're hungry. You should have gathered that the day before. You get it? And so Jesus' disciples are walking through. His disciples get hungry, and they begin to rub the heads of grain and, and pop that grain in their mouth. And the Pharisees see this. And so they call Jesus over, and, and, and they say to Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're breaking God's commands. This is, this is how it would ring to our ears. And maybe you've heard someone say this to you. That's not biblical. Heard someone ever say that to you? That's not biblical. That's, that's kind of the, the mindset that's going on here. And so just like on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to provide a true understanding of God's commands. You have heard that it was said, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, this is what Jesus, he, he doesn't have that same kind of mantra, but that's what he's doing here. And he wants to provide a true understanding of God's commands where the Pharisees had misinterpreted them. He actually wants them to say, you're not as biblical as you think you are. And he says to them, have you not read? Oh, okay, that's not biblical. Have you read your Bibles? That's what Jesus says to them. And he shares two stories and then explains the heart of the law. The first one he appeals is the story of David and his soldiers. Maybe you're familiar with it, but in 1 Samuel 21, David is running from Saul. This is the beginning of him running for his life, and he goes out to the makeshift uh, tabernacle um, that is out in the, in, outside of Jerusalem because at this point the temple hasn't been made, but he goes out there to the holies of holies, if you will, the sanctuary of God, and he comes running for his life. He and his men are hungry. And actually, the story tells them, and they need some weapons. And if you're familiar with the story, well, the weapon that he gets is actually the sword of Goliath uh, that he's going to have, which they have put up in the, in the temple. But in this account, David is running for his life, and, and only bread that's available is the bread of the presence. Now, you might not be familiar with the law, that minute of a detail, but the bread of the presence was uh, made on every Sabbath, and it was put out on the altar, and, then, and it was an offering unto the Lord, uh, one of the offerings that would be made on the Sabbath. But the leftovers were for Aaron's household. Aaron's household were the priests. And it was very explicit. Them and them alone shall eat it. But what does Jesus tell us? He went into the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not biblical for him to eat. Did you forget about that one, guys? That's what Jesus is saying. Here's an example. He gives another one. He gets a little more specific. He gives one from the priesthood itself. And Jesus points out in verse 5, he says, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What's he talking about? Well, somebody still has to offer the sacrifices. Somebody's working on the Sabbath, and it's the priests. They're working, and yet the Scripture upholds them, doesn't count them as guiltless, or doesn't count them guilty. And so Jesus brings all this together, and he quotes uh, in verse 6, Hosea 6.6. And he says to the Pharisees, here's the deal. You don't understand what it means when the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You don't know the mercy of God. 
you wield the Bible like a sword. And you don't know the heart of God. And because you don't understand the heart matters of the commandments, what does he tell them? They condemn the guiltless. They condemn people. You're going to hell. That's what they do. Because you don't keep their laws. Sometimes I think we can become our own Pharisees. We have maybe a hobby horse of ours, and we wield that verse like it's a sword. Sometimes we yield it on our own selves. We condemn ourselves. We have created expectations upon ourselves that the Scripture actually never puts upon us. But we, like the Pharisees, have created 39 categories. Maybe they don't seem as ridiculous as maybe unscrewing the light bulb, but when we step back and we really look at it, you know what? God hasn't put this pressure on me. And some of us are wearing ourselves out, and the Lord's like, I've never asked you to do that. I'm merciful, and you think I demand sacrifice. And sometimes, even worse, we take these things, maybe rules that we're really comfortable with, and we wield them against other people who don't meet what we determine is biblical. That's what Jesus is getting at. And and so the question for us is, do we understand the mercy of God? I think sometimes we think the verse goes the other way around. God desires sacrifice and not mercy. Do you ever find yourself when you see someone being merciful, saying, that's not biblical. That's what these Pharisees were doing. And that's a particular temptation for Bible people like us. We can thump people up by by the head with it. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. So what didn't they understand about the Sabbath? Well, what they didn't understand was that that God was being merciful to us and that he had given the Sabbath to his people for rest. Well, well, how did this work? Well, we know the story of creation, that, that God created in six days and he rested on the seventh. And this is why he rested on the seventh, to build in a design for humans' work week. That's why we have a seven-day work week. And he has built into us and designed it that we would work six days and rest on one. We'd rest on one. This is not only uh, for our own good, but also to trust God that he has designed the world in a way that works well. And so we built into our weekly patterns a day of refreshment, if you will, a day of rest so that we could enjoy the fruit of our labors and give thanks and honor to God for for caring for us. In other words, the Sabbath was a day for God's people to enjoy him and his good gifts. That's, that's, That's a simple way to put it. Enjoy me and my good gifts to you. Enjoy me. Do you see how that's flipped around by these 39 articles, if you will? But this simple command was turned on its head and wielded against people, creating greater burdens upon them, and, and this is where we need to guard ourselves. We think, how does this command of Scripture rightly need to be applied? And we can have the danger of taking principles from Scripture and making them into laws. So what am I talking about? Here's, here's some examples. and I'm going to be very vague, but I think these are helpful for us and things that I see temptations even here. 
Training our children in the fear of the Lord. We agree. That's what the Bible teaches us. And yet some of us have added new laws that it must look like X, Y, or Z. It must look like this education path. It must look like this way of dealing with my children. And it becomes a burden because you can't actually measure up. Abiding in the word of God. That's what Christ says. Abide in me and my word. We've pressed it and says you must have a daily quiet time. And some of you are beating yourself up. I'm not suggesting not read your Bible. I'm just saying some of you beat yourself up. I I didn't make it out of Genesis 2 in my Bible reading plan for this year. (laughs) And you're condemned. Where does it say you must have a yearly Bible reading plan? It doesn't. It just says abide in his word. Giving to the Lord becomes you must give a certain amount. Bearing witness to Christ becomes you need to meet a certain evangelism quota. we got to be careful as we've got a goal. 125 gospel conversations. I don't want that to become law. Well, you didn't get on the board, did you? And condemn the guiltless. Expecting things that, that God doesn't directly demand of us. Being a faithful servant of Christ becomes, well, you must serve in a certain amount of ministries or else you're not really committed. We, we can turn principles that the Scripture calls us to that are meant for our good, and we can turn them into burdens. This is such a dangerous trap to fall into because we need to be on guard against binding people's consciences where the Scripture doesn't bind their conscience. Sometimes we bind our own consciences, and it wears us out because we think God's demanding of this sacrifice from us that he's actually not. And one way you can discern, this isn't complete, but coming back to this text, one way you can discern if you're missing the true intent of Christ's commands as a believer who loves Jesus is if you find them burdensome. Perhaps you have misunderstood. Because Jesus wants you to know that God is merciful to you. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's merciful. He's good. As we read from the psalm, he is good to all. His mercy is over all that has been made. But I think sometimes we just think that Jesus and God, they're killjoys. They're against us. And they've set up these rules and laws that are actually real burdens to us. Well, maybe he hasn't, and you've just made them up, or we've made them up for ourselves. Now that we may, now this might make, I guess, some of you uncomfortable. Remember, do not be offended by Jesus' mercy. This would offend the Pharisees. This type of thing offends often um, Christians when somebody does something merciful to somebody. And it just doesn't fit exactly within the box that you've created. This is what Jesus is doing. He's blowing out their categories. And here's the heart. He's saying, if you know me, you'll be merciful. This is the law of Christ that he's putting down. And so Christ is actually inviting us to learn from him. Learn my ways. He's inviting us to a way of living in the world, a way of being wise in the world that understands God's word. Yes, what are the bounds? What are the principles? But it's not a cookie cutter A plus B equals C all the time. 
There are moral dilemmas that you come into play with. We think about Rahab. The scripture says you shall not lie, right? But she's commended for lying. Sometimes you have to act wisely. God understands we are in a fallen world. That doesn't mean we disregard them, but sometimes it means we have to learn from Christ how do we take his word and, and, and be merciful with people with it in light of the situation. And some of us aren't very good at that. We just think it's A, B, C. And it's not. It's not always that way. And so Jesus invites us actually to learn from him and understand the law of love and the law of mercy. And when we rightly understand the whole law is fulfilled in loving God and loving neighbor, those are the boundary markers, if you will. Loving God and loving neighbor. I quoted this one time, and some of you told me you were uncomfortable with it, so I'll quote it again. Augustine said, love God and do what you want. Does that make you really nervous? There's no boundaries. Everybody's going to go crazy and be unbiblical. Not if you love God. Not if you love him. But that's the issue, Jesus, is you don't understand. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's much more dynamic, Jesus comes into play and says. So we need to rightly perceive Christ's character. That's number two. It's by learning the mercy of God and the character of God that we're actually drawn near to God. And what Jesus teaches us is that he is the one in whom the mercy of God is perfectly manifested. He is the perfect manifestation and revelation of the character of God because he is God. And if we come back to Jesus' rationale and his defense of the disciples, for breaking the law, for breaking the law, we learn that he's teaching us who he is. He actually makes three claims about himself. And I'm, this is going to be a little more theological, but I hope to bring it back and, and bring it to the ground in application. First, he makes that claim about David. Now, that only works if you're David. David broke the law as he was running for his life, and he was hungry. Well, are you David? Jesus doesn't respond, but we know, right? Someone greater than David is here. David, he's the greater David. Second, Jesus says he's the greater temple. So he, he, he goes to the priests, and, and he says, you know what? They profane the Sabbath every Sabbath, and yet they are guiltless. Well, there's something about their Place. They're in the dwelling place of God. They're in his presence. They are doing his service. They're doing, as Jesus will say, good. And they're exempt. Well, Jesus just takes the whole thing and says, well, someone greater than the temple's here. And then finally, Jesus says, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? He is the source. He is the purpose for which the Sabbath is all about. He is the one who instituted, and he is the one by which the Sabbath has actually been pointing. In other words, Jesus is, is teaching us here. He is our Sabbath rest. This is why we don't honor the Sabbath, at least in the Old Testament sense. We're not bound by the Sabbath. Now, the church has moved 
And some have even taken this term, and, and I think it can rightly be understood, that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Well, it depends on what you mean by that. If it's the day, the Lord's day, by which we come and we, we, we cease from our labors and we, 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 we worship Christ and we honor him and praise him, but we're not worried about the light switches, are we? not worried about that, but it is a day we prioritize, and the church has, has taken that, that, that pattern and design that God has given us, but we're not under the law in the same way, because Jesus is our rest. All the commandments of Scripture, brothers and sisters, find their meaning and purpose in Christ. Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ, who has come to give us rest. So it may appear in this text that Jesus is breaking God's commands. Well, in actuality, he's fulfilling them. He's the fulfillment of God's rest. He is the Sabbath rest. They are resting in him and enjoying him as the Sabbath always intended that God's people would. His disciples are with him, walking in the field. And so what we see is that Jesus is the manifestation of God's merciful character towards his people. He's the true king, he's the true temple, and he's the true Sabbath. Now what does that mean for us? What does that practically mean? Well, let's just think about it. If he's the new David, he's the great king, well, what has he done? Well, as our king, he has liberated us from the burden and curse of the law. He's eliminated that. And we're, we're constantly, like the, the Israelites, wanting to go back to Egypt and put ourselves under those elemental principles. We love to live in law because it feels like we're, we're doing something. But Jesus has liberated us from that. He's our king. He's liberated us from the burden of the law. And, and, and just as he satisfied the hunger of the disciples in the field, so he satisfies those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteousness, he satisfies your soul. He satisfies you. He's our true temple, which means he functions as our, our true priest in purifying our hearts from evil deeds so that we may be brought into his presence. What we just saw in Patrick's baptism, him being washed in the waters of baptism, him being buried with Christ and risen with Christ. We're united to Christ because he's our true priest and prophet and king, and he brings us into the presence of God, spotless, without wrinkle. That's how you know you don't have to come to God with sacrifice. He only wants to give you mercy. And he's our true Sabbath. Jesus gives us rest from our burdens, from sins. He comforts us from the hurts of our sins and shows us mercy from the consequences of our sins. And I think if we're, if we're those of us who know Jesus, and we know he knows everything about us, doesn't he? He knows every dark secret, every sin, both public and private. And yet he says, you're mine. You're mine. All who come to me, I will not cast away. I will give you rest for your weary souls. And so as we learn Christ this way, when we begin to realize who he is and what he is offering, the good news of the gospel, we actually begin to perceive his character. 
We begin to learn who he is. And, and as we learn his merciful character, we're drawn to him, right? Paul says it elsewhere. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. I'll, I'll admit sometimes, I think it's the judgment of God. I like to bring the hammer, especially when I'm frustrated. Maybe with my kids. Sometimes with you. Sometimes you bring it back, so let's just keep that fair, okay? <laughs> but actually, you know what? It was Jesus' kindness that brought us near to him, wasn't it? It's how he presents himself. And some of us just think it's the sword. We just think it's wield that sword, and let's call it the Bible. That's not how you learn Christ. It's not how you learned him. That's not how he drew you in. And so when our, get this, this is what he's doing. He's redirecting our loves. What he's requiring of us, he's going to do. He, he actually, he woos us in by his mercy and grace and he warms our heart to him. And as our hearts redirected and our loves are cultivated for him, oh, that begins overflowing in good deeds and righteousness. So that leads us to our third point. When our loves are redirected, as Christ has redirected them, we then rightly reflect Christ's mercy. And this is where we come to another situation. In Matthew 9, or then verses 9 through 13, Matthew brings us to this new situation. They've moved on from the fields. This is probably another uh, Sabbath, but it doesn't really matter. It might have been the same day. But he's here in the synagogue on, on a Sabbath day. And, and Matthew's actually teaching us the same principle, just a new situation. And he actually sets us up so we can see the Pharisees' response to this and say, which side are you on? Which side are you on? And this time Jesus arrives there, and there happens to be a man with a withered or paralyzed hand. Notice this isn't an emergency. He's probably had this paralyzed hand his whole life. And they might go back to say, yeah, but David, that whole situation was an emergency. That's why he goes to the priest. Well, that was just every day. It was an emergency. And so they bring this man, or they recognize that this man is there, the Pharisees do, and, uh, and they think, we're going to take advantage of this situation, which already shows you their evil intent. And this is, this is so dangerous for even conservative Bible Christians. We're going to set them up with the Bible. That right there should be code red. I'm not learning Christ. Christ doesn't set you up. He doesn't set you up. He's merciful. He doesn't parse your words and try to catch you and assume the worst about you. Actually, love, the chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13, believes all things. How often we don't believe the best about people. That's not how Christ has known us and showed himself to us. So the Pharisees, they come and they want to set Jesus up. They want to take advantage of him. And so they ask him, so Jesus, just curious, do you think it's lawful? Is it biblical to heal? Perhaps there would be a man who needed to be healing on the Sabbath. Do you think it's biblical to do that? And this is what Jesus would have had to do, and it could have got him off the hook. All he had to do is come to that man and he say, 
I am so sorry that you have dealt with this ailment in your hand for all these years. Tell you what, it's the Sabbath. Sabbath ends here in about 12 hours. Meet me when sun goes down and I'll heal you. And you know what? The Pharisees have said, we're good to go. It's not what Jesus does. He blows the world up. That's what he does. He blows it up. He has no time and place for the Pharisees' hypocritical games and their perversion. This is what they're doing. They are perverting the word of God to destroy people. You can do this and have the right doctrine, brothers and sisters. You can wield it like a sword. And if your heart's to destroy people, you've misunderstood. Maybe, yeah, you might have the right doctrine, but you do not know what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's what they're doing. They're wielding the sword of the Bible. And Jesus will not let it stand. He will not let their evil intent prevail. And so he gives a practical example. He says, so which one of you, if you have a sheep, falls into a pit, will not reach down and pull them out? Now, Jesus is being very perceptive. You know why they would have done that? Because that sheep is money. That sheep is money. They love their money more than they do people. That's economic loss. I can't wait till tomorrow. The sheep might die. That's profit for me. He says, you go after the sheep. And he says, you know what? People are more valuable than sheep. I think sometimes we're more merciful to those things that benefit us than we are to people. Because we want our way. We want the things we want. But that's not how Jesus is. He's merciful. He's kind and gracious. And so he provides a stunning answer. And you could miss this if you, if you aren't listening carefully. Notice when he says, so it is lawful, or in our ears, it is biblical to do good on the Sabbath. Notice he isn't saying it's acceptable to do good. Oh, that would be okay. No, he's saying that is what's biblical, to do good, to do mercy. That's what God requires. Mercy. As one Bible commentator notes, Jesus equates not doing good with doing evil. You aren't keeping God's law if you aren't doing good to people. John Calvin says it this way. It's this, this is very poignant. He says, he who takes a man's life is guilty of doing evil. But those who do not trouble to help the needy are little different from murderers. You know, we did that historical survey. He wasn't, he, he wasn't always gentle, but he was getting to the point. There's a sense in which, no, what, what does Jesus call us to? To be merciful and good. Jesus says what's truly lawful, what's truly biblical, is to heal the man with the wizard, withered hand. Because he's the true Sabbath rest. He's the true mercy of God being revealed to them. And so, brothers and sisters, if we've learned this mercy, if he's expressed that to us, well, then that's what we should be about, right? 
we should express this same mercy to others. Those of us who experience the goodness of God, we of all people should be extending that goodness to all that we can. Extending that offer of rest to those who are burdened by many things. We love them as Christ loved us. That's why you can call us and say, love your enemies. Notice he doesn't say, make them your friends first, then you can love them. He says, love your enemies, be merciful to them. But they break the Bible rules. Yeah, love them, be merciful to them. So do you see this? The law of Christ, which is the law of love, it's expressed elsewhere, aims at doing what is truly good for others. And we know what is truly good by learning from Christ. Christ becomes the rule, the barrier. You might be saying, well, that's not really helpful. That's too subjective for me. Well, then maybe we need to just keep learning Christ. We keep putting on his yoke upon us and walking with him and, 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 and learning from him. And actually we grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man as we do so. Now notice this is not saying, okay, they're burdened by their sin. Let's be merciful and say you don't, you don't need to repent of your sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what's good, right? That's actually a burden upon them. But how you call them out of that is merciful and kind. And so it's just about even the truth of Scripture that we're not saying we've misinterpreted, but maybe we've, we've misapplied it at the right time and place. And God's Word is never meant to be a burden upon people. His kindness leads them to repentance, not the burden. But I want you to notice as we close here, the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' mercy. They're offended. They're offended by Jesus' mercy towards this person because he breaks their rules. And so what do they do? They plot to kill him. I mean, they're not biblical. <laughs> and that's the strange thing about the law. And we do it to ourselves. We set up these laws that aren't biblical, and we ourselves don't even meet them. And it can be a very dark side, like this side. We have all this facade of holiness, and yet abuse is happening under our watch. Or a husband that pronounces that I'm the head of my household. My wife will submit to me. My kids will obey me, as the Lord says. And he is a tyrant in the home. You do not know Jesus. You are like these Pharisees, plotting to kill him. You do not understand what he means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your grace is abundant toward us. We have come to know you, Jesus. And what have we found? We found that you are our friend. You are our advocate. You are our protector. You are our shepherd, our king, and our deliverer. Thank you, Jesus. We did not deserve it. We were running away from you, seeking our own will, our own pleasure, our own sinful devices. And yet, you were kind to us. 
Father, I pray that you would show us where, where we have not understood the law of Christ, where we have not understood the law of love. And Lord, no doubt all of us fall short and we're thankful that you are merciful to us. But our prayer is, is Lord, that we would continue to put your yoke upon us and learn what you mean when you say you're gentle and lowly of heart. And as we continue to walk with you and be discipled by you, that we would be giving off that fragrance to the world. Those people are gentle and lowly in heart. And Lord, by our kindness, they would come to know the kindness of God and come to repentance. Lord, would you do that through us? We thank you that you have, and we thank you for the promise of your word that that's how you work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.